It's great to be here once again. It's been, I think, about half a year since I was able to be here with you. I always look forward to coming to Lighthouse. I always appreciate being here. Definitely, I bring you greetings from New Life Community Church, where I am typically a pastor. Thank you so much, uh, Pastor Mark, for that introduction and for setting the bar quite high. I had no idea that I represented a school of expository preaching, but I will do my best to try to fulfill that. Many years ago, I was doing my anesthesia residency, and one particular month during that residency, I was doing what was called critical care medicine. And that means that I was spending a lot of time each day in the intensive care unit taking care of patients who were very ill. During that rotation, one day my professor, my attending, who will call Dr. Lee, said to me, Amos, can I talk to you about something personal? I found this somewhat odd because Dr. Lee and I typically only talked about two things. One was critical care medicine. Things like how the heart and lungs work, the effect of oxygen on the various tissues of the body, breathing machines, and so on. The other topic Dr. Lee and I often talked about was Taiwan. Dr. Lee was from Taiwan, and he enjoyed talking about Taiwanese politics. And so a good number of our conversations would somehow morph from critical, medicine, critical care medicine into the topic of Taiwanese politics. Dr. Lee, though, was in his late 60s, and I wondered what sort of things a almost 70-year-old would possibly want to talk with to a 27-year-old who I was at that time. It's not like he was likely to view me as someone with a whole bunch of life wisdom to offer him. Regardless, when your professor asks to talk to you, you say yes. And so I said, sure, Dr. Lee, what can I do for you? Dr. Lee asked me, Amos, do you have a girlfriend? I said, no. He then proceeded to explain that he had a daughter in her mid-30s who was single, and her singleness was a source of anxiety to him. He then said, I would like for my daughter to get married. You seem like a fine young Taiwanese man. Would you be willing to be my daughter's boyfriend? At this point, I silently but very quickly and thoroughly surveyed all the exit routes from that room that we were in, I had no idea what to say, but my heart inside my chest was screaming and praying, Lord, now would be a great time for the rapture. <laughs> if you were in my situation at that time, how might you respond? I thought to myself, Amos, don't say yes. But also don't say no, since that might seem rude, and this is your professor we're talking to. Oh, I know. Ask a distracting question. I had previously learned this technique. And so in response, I said to Dr. Lee, Dr. Lee, you said your daughter is several years older than me. Are you sure she's okay with a guy younger than her? Dr. Lee, unfortunately, was well prepared for this question. He said, oh, I asked my daughter about that already. I showed her your picture. I told her about you and asked if she'd be okay with a guy younger than her. And she says, your age doesn't matter as long as you're mature. Are you mature? 
This was my chance, and I pounced on it. I said, oh, no, definitely not. I am extremely immature. Definitely not mature enough for your daughter. She definitely will not like an immature guy like me. I then excused myself by saying that I needed to go take care of some patients, and then I went to go take care of some patients who honestly did not need to be taken care of. I want you to know that day in the life of Amos Yang, crisis was averted. Today I'd like to talk to you about this topic of maturity. Not whether you're mature enough to date someone older, but rather what the Bible says about achieving the kind of maturity that God both commands and affirms. In 1 Corinthians 14, you're commanded to think in a mature manner. Ephesians 4 tells you that the goal of everything the church is called by God to do is to help you become spiritually mature. Maturity is the obvious goal in Christian living. And that means that if you're needlessly immature, you're disobeying the command of God and rebelling against the purposes that God has given to you and to his church. I know this truth might sound a bit harsh, but it should be obvious. For example, how many of you women would like a husband who is forever immature? One who is endlessly addicted to video games, like a junior high boy, or who squanders his time selfishly only on himself and on meaningless activities? Or for you men, how many of you men would like a wife who is forever immature? One who immediately cries anytime you provide any sort of constructive feedback, or who talks on the phone or video chat or watches endless K-dramas for hours on end, even when there are important realities of life to tend to. Or for those of you who are parents or one day will be parents, how would you like to have raise a child who is forever immature even as an adult? An adult child who never grows up learns self-discipline, becomes self-supporting, and gets off your payroll. If you, as a mere sinner and human being, don't want an immature husband, wife, or an adult child, how do you think God views an immature Christian? That's the problem we confront today. We have many Christians who are Permanently, it seems, immature despite having been Christians for quite a long time. Might that be you? When God looks at you, does he see someone who is mature or immature? Our passage today is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And in this passage, you're going to see three imperatives for achieving Christian maturity. Three imperatives for achieving Christian maturity. You want to know cold and live out these imperatives so that you can fulfill the purposes God has called you to and so that you don't end up being that Christian who is forever immature, one who one day will have many bitter regrets and who will lose out on much reward in heaven. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5, actually. Our passage is chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, but I'll begin reading in chapter 5, verse 11, to supply some context. Please do follow along in your own Bibles since the text won't be up here on the slides. Beginning now in Hebrews 5.11, and I am reading from the New American Standard. 
concerning him. We have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Before we dive into our text, allow me to make some preliminary acknowledgments. Some of what we talk about today might be difficult for some of you to hear and receive. Some of it might sound a bit strange, to be honest. And for some of you, some of what we talk about today may be things that you have never heard before. Especially in light of that, I want to call attention to three things that I as a guest preacher will never be able to do as well as your shepherds here at Lighthouse. As a guest preacher, similar to virtually all other guest preachers pretty much anywhere else in the world, I will never know you the way your shepherds know you. Your elders know your context and situation, both corporately as a church body and also individually on a personal level. Second, I will never be able to claim to love you the way your shepherds love you. Although I can honestly say that I love Lighthouse Bible Church, just how robustly can I claim to love you when, to be honest, I don't even know most of your names? And third, I'll never be able to shepherd you the way your shepherds shepherd you. Because your shepherds know you and love you, they are uniquely positioned in this entire world to shepherd you in a way that no one else can. And they, and not I, are the ones that the Bible says will give an account to God one day for you and your soul. And what this means is if something I say today strikes you as strange, what you should do is to go to your shepherds and go with whatever they say. They might know, for example, that your specific situation calls for an emphasis on a different truth than the ones I emphasize today. As a guest preacher, I happily defer to your shepherds, and you should as well. They're the ones that the Bible tells you in Hebrews 13 to obey and to submit to. Diving right in, as I mentioned, we are focusing on chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, but I included chapter 5, verses 11 through 14 in the textual reading. In that passage, at the end of chapter 5 of Hebrews, the author of this letter contrasts the maturity that you should be characterized by against the immaturity that most Christians actually reflect. In that passage, you're told that if you are a Christian and have been a Christian for a while, you should be mature enough to communicate spiritual truths to someone else. You should have already mastered the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You should be accustomed to the word of righteousness and solid spiritual food. You should also be able to discern between good and evil, the text says here. 
Unfortunately, many Christians are entirely the opposite, dull of hearing, haven't grasped even the basics of Christian doctrine and Christian living, undiscerning when it comes to good and evil, and able, it says here, to partake only of spiritual milk and not spiritual food. Which of these two types of Christians are you? As some of you might be aware, I have four kids who I believe are in the back over there. Like most other young children, my kids require frequent and seemingly constant guidance on what they should and shouldn't eat. Left to their own devices, my kids would choose to eat popsicles and ice cream and candy all day and every day and never eat meat and vegetables. Also, if given a choice, my middle two kids would probably drink, just drink milk and instead of ever eating legitimate mood, just drink more and more and more milk. At most meals, my wife and I have to monitor just how much milk those two kids are drinking because otherwise they fill up on just milk and don't leave any room in their stomachs for real food. And that, in turn, can cause various problems, including malnutrition, iron deficiency, anemia, and so on. There are many benefits to milk, but in terms of long-term nutrition, milk is woefully inadequate. In the exact same way, there are Christians who, despite having been Christians and having been believers for quite a long time, have consumed, spiritually speaking, only milk. This might be because the church they're at serves nothing but milk. You're at a church that serves wonderful, solid food, but perhaps you space out or choose not to attend consistently enough to benefit from that spiritually solid food. Yet another possibility is that you just flat out reject the solid food when it's presented to you. I know this isn't a mere theoretical possibility. Over at New Life, several times in our brief history, including even just this past year, this has, this has occurred. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's occurred here at Lighthouse as well. In fact, given the pervasiveness of sin, I actually would be surprised if it hasn't occurred. You know that God wants you to be mature and not immature and for you to be the type of Christian who consumes primarily spiritual food and not just milk. How do you get there? Look with me again here at verse 1. The author says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Notice that the author wants you to mature. If you compare chapter 5, verse 12, with verse 1 here, the author assumes that you want to grow from being someone who needs to be taught the elementary principles of the oracles of God to being someone who has mastered those teachings and hence can move on to that, from that. This is what God wants for you. But is this what you want for you? Those who aspire to maturity tend to mature, and those who don't tend not to. Whether this is your aspiration makes a tremendous difference. If you want to achieve Christian maturity, you have to aspire to it. And this brings you to our first imperative for achieving Christian maturity, and that is to aspire to it. Aspire to it. Spiritual maturation happens neither passively nor accidentally. 
Imagine with me for just a minute that you acquire the ability to see into the future. You then wonder what you're like towards the end of your life, and so you use your newfound ability to look decades into the future at the year or two before your death. You discover that at that point in your life, you're pretty much the same person you are now, at least spiritually speaking. You might have more wrinkles, or pounds, or gray hair, or less hair, but at least spiritually, you're more or less the same. You attend and serve at church just as faithfully or unfaithfully as you do now. You think of God in the same manner as now, and you understand the same parts of the Bible as you currently do, nothing more and nothing less. You notice that you also have pretty much all the same character strengths, weaknesses, and hang-ups as you have now. You're the same person, just physically much older. What's your reaction to such a scenario? If that future you just heard doesn't disturb you, if you're okay with that potential future, it's safe to say that you don't aspire to spiritual growth and Christian maturity. Aspiring to maturity means that you want to be a different and godlier person with each and every passing day. Not aspiring to such means that you're self-content, just maintaining yourself in a spiritual holding pattern and at least spiritually speaking, just waiting to die. If so, maturity will always escape you. That doesn't have to be the case though. You can install resolve to achieve Christian maturity and the first imperative for that is to aspire to it. Looking again at verse 1, the author says they're in the middle of the verse. Let us press on to maturity. This is the central thrust of our passage and the second imperative for, to achieve Christian maturity, which is to press on to it. Press on to it. For maturity to become a reality in your life, you have to actively pursue it. Again, spiritual maturation doesn't happen passively. For you to press on to maturity effectively, you have to be clear on what that word means. This word maturity has been arbitrarily defined in a myriad of different ways, just like the word love. Some would say that maturity means that you're physically fully grown. Others would say that it means you've accumulated a decent amount of money, power, and authority. Yet others would say that maturity is the ability to attract someone of the opposite gender or to behave in socially acceptable ways. Things like not burping at the table or asking awkward questions or saying things that other people find offensive. To make it even more complicated, as many of you are aware, different cultures define maturity entirely differently. We're concerned today, though, with God's definition of maturity. Let me give you three marks of maturity as described in God's word. First, back in chapter 5, verse 14 here in Hebrews, you see that maturity involves discernment. Maturity involves discernment, the ability and willingness to distinguish between good and evil. There is no such thing as a mature Christian who refuses to recognize, identify, and call out evil. 
One very odd example of a complete lack of discernment would be a headline that was in the news this past year. Down in San Diego, there apparently is a pastor who, besides being a female pastor, also works as a star in the adult entertainment industry, also known as pornography. What's more, she's married. What do you think her husband thinks about her activities here? Her husband is actually supportive of her career, and he too calls himself a pastor. So much could be said about this comical and farcical situation, but one obvious truth is that these so-called pastors lack discernment and hence are immature regardless of what anyone else might claim or think to the contrary. Second, maturity embraces solid Bible teaching. That verse there in chapter 5, verse 14, says that solid food, referring to solid Bible teaching, is for the mature. When the Bible is taught faithfully and aggressively, the mature say, this is good stuff. This is food. The immature instead, though, are offended by the Bible, are uncomfortable with it, reject it in part or in whole and say things like, yes, the Bible says that, but blank, and then fill in the blank with something unbiblical. A couple of decades ago, I discipled a high school student who we'll call John. John's parents had divorced several years prior, and the reason they divorced was because John's mother had developed schizophrenia in middle age. She began regularly experiencing hallucinations and would speak openly to the voices that she constantly heard. Her husband decided that he didn't want to have a literally crazy woman in his family, and so he summarily divorced her. Of note, John's father professed to be a believer and attended the same church as both John and myself. In the course of my discipleship relationship with John, John voraciously read the scriptures, and he came across what the Bible says about the topic of divorce. He then went to his father and said, Dad, the Bible says that unless there's adultery or desertion, you can't divorce your wife. You shouldn't have divorced mom. His father responded, Well, John, the Bible was written, you know, something like 200 years ago so you can't take it too seriously. John responded, actually, Dad, the Bible was written 2,000 to 3,400 years ago, not 200 years ago. To which his father then said, oh, even more reason why you shouldn't take it too seriously. John was only in high school, but in the eyes of God, he very well may have been more mature than his father. Maturity embraces solid Bible teaching. Third, maturity means Christ-likeness. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul describes maturity as being the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, being like Christ in every possible manner, character, perspective, and behavior. With these marks of maturity in mind, you're able to recognize many practical differences between the immature and the mature. 
The immature practice worldliness. The mature practice holiness. The immature emphasize what's permissible. The mature emphasize what's beneficial. And I believe a lot of these are included in the next slide. The immature exercise their freedoms for their own enjoyment. The mature limit their freedoms for the sake of others and to avoid what is potentially enslaving. The immature view themselves as free from sin. The mature understand that, but also view themselves as slaves of Christ. The immature say, I have faith. The mature say, because I have faith, I also have works. The immature confuse obedience with legalism. The mature recognize that obedience is love for Christ and others. This all is why, broadly speaking, there are two kinds of Christianity, two kinds of churches, and two kinds of Christians. There's the immature type, and there's the mature type. Both types claim the name of Christ, and yet it often feels like they are entirely different religions because they are oriented so differently, aim at different targets, and result in different outcomes. Looking again here at our text, as we already said, the central idea of our passage is what occurs right in the middle of verse 1. Let us press on to maturity. Everything else in our passage, both before and after, describes what that involves. And that brings you to the third imperative to achieve Christian maturity, and that's grow past the mere basics. Grow past the mere basics. The author describes growing past the mere basics in two different ways. And the first way is by telling you, leave the elementary teaching about the Christ. You see this at the beginning of verse 1. There are basic teachings about Christ, and there are the more challenging teachings, and the author is telling you to get past the mere basics. It's important to understand what the author is telling you here. He is not telling you to repudiate and disavow the basics of Christianity. All such truths are still true, will forever be true, and hence are to be forever embraced and lived out. What he is telling you, though, is to get past the mere basics. Last year, my daughter Jenna was in kindergarten. One day when I was helping her with her homework, the assignment was a bunch of math worksheets that only asked her to do one thing. Put the first 10 numbers in order. After several of these worksheets, I could tell that Jenna had easily mastered the task at hand, and so I told her, okay, it's time to leave these worksheets behind. What does it mean when I tell my daughter Jenna it's time to leave those worksheets behind? Do I mean that it's time to come up with a new numbering scheme, one where three comes after eight? And the answer, of course, is no. What I mean is that it's time to go on to more advanced concepts that build on those elementary basics. More advanced concepts like linear algebra, number theory, and multivariable calculus. This is why one Bible translation helpfully phrases that word leaving in verse 1 as move beyond. You never repudiate or redefine the basics, but you do need to move beyond them and build on those basics. The second way the author phrases what it means to press on to maturity is by telling you, 
don't lay again the foundation. You see this at the end of verse 1 there. This is similar in meaning to what we just said, but what follows now are three pairs of ways the author exhorts his audience to not lay again the foundation. Recall with me right now that among other reasons, this letter to the Hebrews was written to exhort Jewish converts to Christianity to remain faithful to Christ and to not revert to their past Jewish background and religion. This is somewhat similar to how many of you might be or know immigrant Christians, perhaps some of your own parents, who became Christian believers only in adulthood, perhaps only after coming to the United States. Such Christians understandably often struggle with faithfulness to Christ in those areas of life where Christ calls you to something different and better than what your cultural background assumes and practices. If and when you find yourself in that situation, you might waffle, feeling pulled in one direction by the call of Christ and in another direction by your flesh and culture. And to you in your situation, the word of God says, press on to maturity. Go in the right direction rather than the wrong one. Similarly, Jewish Christians of the first century had been taught Christian truths, but were tempted to revert back to their past Jewish practices. And so the author reminds them to press on to maturity rather than entertain such a foolish choice. The first pair of ways the author exhorts his audience to get past the mere basics is in this area of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. In becoming Christians, the Jews understood that conversion involves repentance and faith. You don't rely on your own works for salvation, and salvation requires faith from God, Christ to be specific. The second pair of basics to get past is in this area of washings and laying on of hands. You see that there in verse 2. Prior to becoming Christians, first century Jewish believers were immersed in a religion where you had to engage in various ceremonial cleansings and offer sacrifices at the temple. Those sacrifices involved the temple priests laying their hands on the sacrificial animals to signify that that animal was being offered in place of people. In becoming Christians, Jewish believers had to be instructed regarding how Christ fulfills and replaces all of that. The third pair of basics to get past is the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. You see that here at the end of verse 2. These two topics of the resurrection and eternal judgment are topics that are addressed only relatively vaguely in the Old Testament compared to the New Testament. In New Testament Christianity, though, these topics are a rather big deal, and they serve you as powerful motivators of godly Christian living. You will be resurrected one day, and when that happens, you will face judgment. The author says that these are all basics in the Christian life that you need to get past. Ironically, what's called the basics in our text are far more advanced than what we oftentimes call the basics today. This all is why it is a travesty when Christians emphasize only the elementary truths of the Bible and seek to ignore everything else. 
In the Great Commission, Christ commands that we teach others to obey all that he has commanded us. Not just the basics, but everything. The goal of Christianity has never been to simply get out of hell and go to heaven. The goal has always been to become mature, seeking to obey Christ in everything and teaching others to do the same. Notice that there is absolutely no context in life where you affirm immaturity long term. When you see a kindergartner learn the first 10 numbers or the 26 letters of the English alphabet, you think and say, good job. What would you think, though, if you were to see a high school senior struggling to do the same? When you see a baby drinking milk from a milk bottle, you think and say, aw, how cute. What would you think, though, if you were to see a grown adult doing the same? You would think and say something like, what is wrong with you? And similarly, if you're a Christian who remains immature, everyone around you should have the same reaction. Goodness, what's wrong with you? In college, I had a friend we'll call Kevin. He and I both led small group Bible studies, and one day I was talking to someone in Kevin's small group. That person told me he supports feminism. Later that week, I happened to come across Kevin, and I told him about that conversation and said, maybe you'd like to talk to this guy about what the Bible says about manhood and womanhood. In response, Kevin said to me, oh, that stuff isn't the gospel, so I don't really care what people say or think about that stuff. I focus on just the gospel. Earlier, I shared with you some of the practical differences between maturity and immaturity. Here are a few more on this next slide. The immature embrace only the basics of the Bible. The mature embrace both the basics and the more challenging parts. The immature never get past salvation. The mature build on the foundation of salvation. The immature are skeptical of the Bible. The mature receive the entirety of the Bible. For the rest of our time today, I'd like to touch upon a major controversy in Christianity today the movement known as Christ-centered preaching, also known as gospel-centered preaching. This is a movement that became popular beginning in the 1990s, also sometimes referred to as cross-centered preaching, and it has only grown since the 90s. Some of you may have even come to Lighthouse from churches that promote this perspective. Others of you have family or friends who attend such churches. Even if you don't currently know anyone who does, I think I can guarantee sooner or later you will. Over at New Life, in just the past several years, we've had several individuals leave our church over this specific issue. Let me take some time to describe Christ-centered preaching. From now on, I'll refer to Christ-centered preaching as CCP. And so for the rest of today's sermon, CCP refers to Christ-centered preaching not the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> Here are some central assumptions and characteristics of CCP. 
Christ is the central theme and person of Scripture. Therefore, Christ and the gospel are to be found in every text and every passage of Scripture, even if the text and passage never mention or refer to Christ. Or to phrase it even more explicitly, CCP advocates would say that the point of every single passage is actually Christ and the gospel, even if the passage never mentions such. Three, the goal in preaching any text is to get to the gospel and preach the gospel. Four, to accomplish this, non-literal and even creative or entirely novel methods of interpreting the Bible that no one has ever thought of before are permitted or even encouraged. And five, the primary or even exclusive value of the commands of Scripture is not as instruction in faithful Christian living, but as illustrations of your need for the gospel and to point you to the gospel. Perhaps the most famous person who has promoted CCP in the past few decades is Tim Keller in New York. With those assumptions in mind, here's a table that summarizes some of the specific differences between the expository preaching that both New Life and Lighthouse, along with many other churches, practice versus CCP. To highlight just some of the differences, in terms of interpretive value, or interpretive method, I should say, we endeavor to read the text plainly and to take it at face value the way God has delivered it to us. In contrast, CCP is willing to do to the text whatever is needed to make it teach the gospel, even if that requires twisting the text quite severely. Whereas we want to preach the text that God has given us, CCP advocates want to preach mostly or only the gospel and are therefore willing to neglect the text right in front of them to make that happen. If, for example, you have a question about whether you should submit to your husband or love your wife, we would point to passages that say, wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives, and conclude, hmm, yes, you should submit to your husband, and yes, you should love your wife. In contrast, a genuine CCP advocate would instead say, well, let's think about the gospel and think about what some implications of the gospel might be, potentially never even pointing to the Bible passages that explicitly answer the question. To illustrate how this all works, let's take a simple text and demonstrate how differently expository preaching and Christ-centered preaching would handle it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 7, you read, Pray without ceasing. In expository preaching, we might say something like this text instructs you to pray without ceasing. This is what pray means. This is what without ceasing means. Let's talk about now how to do that. Let's talk about how to cultivate a lifestyle of frequent and regular prayer. Some ways you can do that are to pray the scriptures, attend the prayer meetings of your church, or have regular daily devotions that include prayer or better yet, all of the above. Notice that in this method, what is preached and applied is the text. In contrast, how would Christ-centered preaching approach this text? Their sermon would sound something like this. This text says, pray without ceasing. You know what? I know none of you pray without ceasing. And that's because you're a sinner 
and that means you need the gospel. The point of this passage is the gospel. Here's the gospel, and for the rest of our sermon today, we're going to preach the gospel. The same gospel that we've preached as the primary content for every sermon, every Sunday for the past two or three decades. Think about the gospel, appreciate the gospel, celebrate the gospel. Notice that in this method, the text itself has largely been neglected and remains unapplied. The text has served, simply served as a launching point to the gospel, not as an exhortation to pray, even though the passage clearly instructs you to do that. So, what should you think about Christ-centered preaching? Let me give you just five brief thoughts here. First, we appreciate their love for the gospel and their willingness to preach it enthusiastically. But second, we're grieved by their neglect and mishandling of the rest of the scriptures. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. Not just the gospel and not just messages about the gospel. In the Great Commission, as you just heard a little bit ago, Christ commands that you teach all that he's commanded us not just the gospel. When you became a Christian and embraced the gospel, your Christian life began. And from that point forward, there is an entire lifetime of sanctification and growth that's supposed to occur with each passing day. The gospel is the wonderful foundation of our faith, but it's just the starting point. It isn't the ending destination. It isn't the end all, actually. It is the beginning towards the end all. Third, the gospel-only approach of CCP is a tremendous violation of passages like ours today. Let me read to you one last time, verse 1, to you, and you can see how easily it directly applies to Christ-centered preaching. Leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. In my neighborhood, not too far from here, there seems to always be somewhere a house being built. When that occurs, there is a predictable pattern I've observed. First, they lay the foundation, and then they build the house on top of that foundation. Never have I seen a house builder lay the foundation only to lay the foundation again and again and again and again, never getting to building a house on the foundation. That's what Christ-centered preaching does, though. Always laying the foundation and never getting to building the house on top of that foundation. Fourth, the trajectory of CCP is dangerous. When you get in the habit of neglecting the plain meaning of the text right in front of you for the sake of the gospel, you become accustomed to setting aside more and more biblical truths. Not surprisingly, Christians who sit under CCP tend to not emphasize or live out godly and holy living. Why would they? All of the passages of Scripture that command such are interpreted not as instruction regarding how to please God and live as a Christian, but instead as mere arrows that point to the gospel. To give you a tangible example of the dangers of CCP, Around 12 years ago, at a church in Orange County, 
the pastor went through a process of transformation that resulted in him embracing CCP. In a sermon promoting that perspective, the pastor said he previously preached through Matthew for five years and then through 1 Timothy for two years. Regarding preaching through 1 Timothy, the pastor then said this, my heart couldn't handle it. I wanted to be with Christ. I wanted to be with grace and the Lord. My heart couldn't handle all these imperatives in the epistles, all these commands, because I was miserable with all my failures and how far I fell short of God's command. So I went back to the gospel of John. Later in the same sermon, this pastor then gave indication that from that point in his ministry, he would likely only preach from the Gospels and no longer from the New Testament epistles. Within a couple years, his previously healthy church was more or less destroyed by the chaos and disease of CCP. Because of CCP, other churches have been led ultimately into things like embracing wokeness, liberalism, and homosexuality, denying the inspiration of the scriptures and rejecting the necessity of Christ for salvation. In other words, explicit heresies. Such is the natural outcome of neglecting the plain sense of the scriptures in front of you, even if it's for something as wonderful as the gospel itself. I know it sounds potentially so wrong to object to something that has such an attractive sounding name as Christ-centered preaching. Who wants to object to something with Christ in its name? However, even though CCP does have an attractive sounding name, its actual content is actually downright dangerous. If I were to ask you something like, do you object to and oppose milk? Instinctively, you want to say, no, of course I don't. But the right answer would be something like it depends on the context. As an exclusive diet for anyone other than very small babies, milk is woefully inadequate and leads to malnutrition. Similarly, as a spiritual diet for Christians, Christ-centered preaching is woefully inadequate and leads to malnutrition and immaturity. So does any emphasis only on the basics to the neglect of the rest of the scriptures that God has given to you and to me. One last thought before we close, just for your awareness and vigilance. CCP proponents often misidentify their method as expository preaching. That can be confusing. They sometimes claim the label for themselves because they view Christ-centered preaching as true and genuine expository preaching. And so even though someone claims the label of expository preaching, you still have to be careful to observe the actual details. Today, you've seen three imperatives for achieving Christian maturity. Aspire to it, press on to it, and grow past the mere basics. Verse 3 concludes with this thought, and this we will do if God permits. The fact that you are here seems to imply that God has given to you sufficient time and resources to accomplish the task at hand. So, let's press on to maturity and get past the basics. Please pray with me.
Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the sufficiency of your word. It is so wide and so deep. It is simultaneously understandable, even to the newest of Christians, and at the same time, something studyable and so enriching for even those who are so seasoned and who are so knowledgeable of it. Thank you for your word's inspiration. Thank you that it, in its completion, is exactly as you wanted to give it to us. And thank you for the great commission that does call us to teach and obey all that Christ has commanded. I thank you for everyone here. Father, for those who are still struggling to understand the basics, perhaps because of coming to Christ only recently, we do pray that you would give a complete and thorough understanding of the basics of Christ and repentance and faith. And for those who have belonged to you for a while, we do pray for continued maturity, that we would seek to obey you in everything, to love you through obedience, and to glorify you in that manner. Thank you so much, Father. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.